Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Genesis, we're in chapter 3 today. And we are looking at the fall. Last week we looked at part one. We talked about uh, temptation's course to deception. Today we're going to continue and look at sin's curse and condemnation. Last week we talked about the greatest act of evil to ever affect the world. The sin entering every person. And I talked about a very important understanding about the chapter as a whole. Really, for the first 11 chapters, this is true. But how Genesis chapter 3 is not a fable or a fairy tale or some kind of a mythical story, but rather it records a real historical record of how evil rooted itself by sin into death, into pain, into the suffering of the world. And we saw this, that all are sinful by nature because of the fall of one man, Adam. But in love, God seeks us out to save through Jesus. And as we began to talk about that, we talked about four moves that we see in chapter 3. How it is that man fell from perfection to total depravity. And we considered Temptation to sin always follows a familiar course to naked shame and ruthless blame. But God in love seeks us out to save. And that's what we saw last week. The first move was how temptation twists truth to deceive. And it it comes and it questions God's truthfulness. It questions his trustworthiness. Almost always focused upon his word. And we talked about how temptation is never mere chance. It's never just an encounter that that is one of happenstance. It's always an intentional act of war to steal glory from God. And its path is always one way with one end. Fear, guilt, shame, and condemnation that sin brings. So temptation is always an invitation and a path to deception. There's really only one way to fight sin effectively that scripture gives over and over and over again. At the point of temptation, flee. Flee. Run away. Get away as fast as you can, as far as you can. And deal with it in that way. The second move that we saw in verses 8 through 13 was sin's dark knowledge that fuels shame and blame. So once given over to temptation, we see Adam and Eve fully enter in disobedience. And that begins, uh, it darkens their knowledge of God and it fuels the shame of their life and the blame from their life. And so this doubt and disbelief in God that is fueled by their sin darkens their thinking That produces the acts of their disobedience, their sinful acts, and that results in fear and shame and guilt. Immediately, it says, they knew something about themselves that had always been true, but now they thought about it differently than they had ever thought about it before. Most importantly, we talked about this, that guilt is not primarily a feeling. Guilt is principally 
a knowledge, a knowledge that is darkened by sin in our thinking. And so the only way to conquer guilt and shame of sin is not in some way to over-emote or over-feel the heaviness of it, but rather understanding what Christ has done for us in our place to believe in his work and to receive his forgiveness and his cleansing. Now, we also talked about that this is not just the story of one man and his wife, Adam and Eve, but rather it's the state of every person. And we looked over into Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 where Paul says this, Therefore sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so we see at this point of sin's entry into humanity that because of that, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's essential to understand Genesis 3 from Romans 5, 12 perspective in this way. Because if we do not, then this remains something that they dealt with and not something that I have to deal with. And the fact of the word, the truth of God's word tells us that's not true. That we all deal with this, but sin wants you to think that you can distance yourself and separate yourself from it. So today we're going to look at the last two moves of man's fall to depravity. And here's what we will learn. That all live under sin's curse that condemns. But Jesus became our curse and bore our condemnation for us that we might be reconciled to God. All, all people live under sin's curse that condemns. We are sinful not only in our actions, but in our very nature. But Jesus became our curse and bore our condemnation for us that we might be reconciled to God. Now, Genesis chapter 3, verse 14 and following reveal God's response to Adam and Eve's sin. So we have seen God came to them in the garden, uh, verse 8 through 13, and, and they tell him, uh, we, re- we hid from you because we knew we were naked. And God said, who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the fruit of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And Adam said, well, uh, she made me do it. And Eve said, uh, the serpent made me do it. And so now we see in response to this moment, God's response to sin with a curse. What does God do? And we'll walk through these verses momentarily as we consider them. But God responds to sin with a curse. Now, a curse simply means to place a measure of limitation or a declaration of harm upon something. And I think it's important for us to ask, as we look at the remainder of this chapter as a whole, some important questions. Is it loving of God to pronounce a curse on sin? If God loves us, why would he curse us? Is that a loving act? Secondly, I think we have to ask, what is it that God accomplishes in the curse? Why would he curse sin? Why Couldn't he find another way, do something different? Or did he have to curse sin? And thirdly, I want us to look today at what does the curse mean for us 
today. If that's what it meant for Adam and Eve in that day, what does it mean for you and I today? We'll identify these and we'll answer these issues as we work through the verses. The third move that I want us to see in sin's curse to condemnation is this, God's grace in the curse that he gives. The grace of God in the curse that he gives. Look with me at Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent. Now remember, he's reversing the order. And the order is important, friends. The order of God's address shows us how it is that God will conquer sin for us. And so he says, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Let's pause there for a moment. God begins by addressing the serpent. He asks nothing of the serpent, and he allows the serpent to say nothing. He doesn't need a reason from the serpent. He gives no priority or no recognition to the serpent. Rather, he curses the serpent to the lowliest place of humiliation. And then he pronounces the serpent's ultimate attempt and defeat. Verse 15, he says that God himself will place enmity between he and the woman and her offspring. This doesn't just mean that women will hate snakes. Though I am totally fine if that's a personal application you want to make. Rather, the serpent, he says, will bruise the offspring's heel. In other words, the serpent will continue his wary and his deceiving ways. And he will strike at the heel of your offspring. But the offspring will crush the serpent's head. Offspring there is singular. And it points us to an individual, not just the result of giving birth. You see, God declares in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, in his curse, there will be enmity between Satan and humanity, the offspring of the woman. But one of her offspring will be born who will ultimately defeat evil. Satan will strike the heel of this one, but that heel will crush his head. Genesis 3.15 is known as the proto-evangelion, the first glimmer of the gospel. You see, from Genesis chapter 3 on, God has begun to pronounce good news in the light and in the face of our sin and our rebellion against him. You see, first of all, God's declaration is a sentence that is placed on the enemy, not an explicit promise to man. Hear me, friends, this is critical to the gospel. The gospel is not first and foremost news to us about us. First and foremost, the gospel is news about God about who he is and about what he has done and about how Satan has no hope and no standing against him. Between God and Satan, God speaks. 
And first and foremost, the gospel deals with sin and glory directly between God and Satan. And God says this, I will crush you. I will crush you. You will get your strike, but I will ultimately crush you. And the second way he does that is the foreshadowing of the virgin birth. Adam is nowhere mentioned in God's curse upon the serpent. Why? Because it is through Adam that God places the responsibility for sin entering into humanity. But it will be through the offspring of Eve through which a Savior will come. You see, that's why the virgin birth is such a central doctrine for the Christian faith. Because the seed of sin is passed through Adam. But the conception for Mary was given by the Holy Spirit. And so we see a foreshadowing of the one offspring that will come. And though Satan will strike, Jesus will come as the seed of a woman to ultimately defeat Satan. Immediately God turns next to the woman. And though he's told her already that her offspring will be victorious, he tells her it will not be without pain. Look at verse 16. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, when God comes to the woman to address her, his curse is not used against her. But a cause is also not given. In other words, in other words, he doesn't say to her, because of your sin. I want you to understand this. God addresses the woman in light of her position in which he has placed her. And though he does not release her from her wrongdoing, he makes her culpable through her deception, not willful rebellion. Now, all sin is rebellion, that we know. But the way in which it enters and the responsibility upon which God places each one in this story is important for us to understand. And Paul will unpack this later in the New Testament as we talk about uh, there, we talk about uh, how sin enters and ultimately how the Savior will come, as I mentioned a while ago, but also how the roles and the responsibility in a marriage relationship are to work out. There's a reason for this, and we'll get back to that in just a moment. There was a willful rebellion of the serpent. There was willful rebellion of the man, though he still is denying it and refusing it. But with Eve, her wrongdoing came through culpability by the serpent's deception. And as such, one commentator tells us this, that the woman receives a gentler word because her punishment includes God's design for her, bearing children, as a means of her salvation. Not that she is saved through childbearing, but rather in childbearing will be a constant reminder not only of her sin and the pain of it, not only of her sin, but also of the hope that we have in the coming Savior of Jesus Christ who will be born 
of a virgin. You see, sin's consequence for the woman is distinct in two ways. First, she'll have consequences in the pain of childbearing. This will be both a blessing to her and a reminder to her. I don't know if, if you are aware of this, but every childbirth is painful. That's what I've been told. Much like a man's cold, but that, I don't want to get off on that today. Sorry, I had to get that in there. Guys, think it's funny and serious. Women, please accept my apology. A painful childbirth, one commentator says, signals hope, but serves as a perpetual reminder of sin and the woman's partaking of it. You see, this is important because it reveals that the pain of her punishment entails salvation. Whereas the man's action condemned the human family, Eve will be the one that plays the critical role in liberating them from sin's consequence, pain and hope. Childbirth itself is not that which is cursed because Christ did not enter the world through a curse. But the one who knew no sin became sin for us. Rather, the uncursed was born of a virgin and he would come to bear our curse for us. This is what Galatians and Romans teaches us. Also, it shows even here that God does not place the weight of responsibility for sin on Eve, but he will place it on Adam because of the role for which he gave Adam. By God's creational design, the woman will bear children for her offspring and the victor will come this way. But it will be an ever-present reminder of her sin. Now the second distinction of sin's consequence will not only be in the pain of childbearing, but it will be in the relationship with her husband. He says this, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, this phrase, contrary to your husband, but shall rule over, excuse me, uh, that, that your sin, verse, um, let me go back just a second. Uh, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. That, that contrary to, that, that desire that is contrary to, is a phrase that's only used one other time in the Pentateuch, and it's used in the next chapter, Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. And in that chapter, God is addressing Cain about his wrong sacrifice. Cain is mad at God because God did not accept his sacrifice the way he accepted Abel's sacrifice. And God tells Cain in his anger that sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. You see, what the author here is telling us that God is saying to Eve is that her desire for her husband is like the sin that stands ready to leap at Cain. This is not a, the desire as we think of that, that maybe has intimate or sexual connotations to it, but rather it's the orientation of relationship. Her internal inclination will be to dominate her husband because of the work of sin within her. And that is what God is telling her that she must fight. 
Because when she relates to her husband out of that sinful desire, that sinful motivation, what will take place is he will rule, oh, he will be, uh, he will master her. She will be mastered by him. In other words, it will be an outcome that is worse than the motivation to begin with. And she can either fight her sin and rule her sin within or she can operate out of her sinful desire and be mastered by it in this way. You see, the primary work of sin in a woman is her principal temptation will be to act willfully and independently to dominate her husband instead of submitting in accordance with God's created order. Oh, I know, friends. This is not popular. Matter of fact, it's not only popular, it's ideology that the culture has its crosshairs on today. And you can be upset with me about teaching it, or you can be mad at God. That's ultimately who you're upset about in this. You can even find ways to twist it and do gymnastics hermeneutically around it so that you don't have to deal with it. But the fact of the matter is, God's word doesn't change. And even more than that, this is not heavy-handedness towards women. This is God's good and gracious gift to you. And until you see it as God's will and see it as God's design, you will continue to be mastered, as the curse says, by your sin. And by the propensity of it driving you evermore. That's what Eve did. She said of Adam, who was present with her when the serpent tempted her, if you're not going to deal with this, if you're not going to take care of it in the way I think you should, I will. And she did. And that's what God is dealing with here. Verses 17 to 19. Next, God turns to Adam. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. When God addresses Adam, he goes immediately out of his own placement of responsibility on Adam for the relationship to confront his passivity and his abdication. You see, Adam is given the principal responsibility by God because God gave the command for them to him. This is important. Chapter 1, when God said, the commands, and early on in chapter 2, when God gave the command of all the trees they could eat and the one that they were not to eat of, he gave that command for both of them, but he gave it to Adam. And this is the reason that God addresses Adam last, because he's giving the principal responsibility for the command to him. He says this, I commanded you that you shall not eat. You see, Adam's fundamental mistake was obeying his wife rather than God. To make more clear, the problem 
was that Adam obeyed his wife instead of considering her. And he removed himself from God's ordained placement in the relationship. He said, I don't want to take that responsibility. And then he left Eve exposed and vulnerable to the temptation. Friends, it's not nice just to let her have her desire. But God says this, it is lazy You leave her exposed and unprotected because you do not serve the purpose for which I created you and placed you in this relationship. The command was for them both, but the primary responsibility to obey and fulfill it was placed on Adam. God holds Adam responsible for listening when he should have been leading, for abdicating when he should have been taking initiative to act, And for obeying when he should have been protecting his wife. God curses the ground then from which Adam will labor to provide for his family. It will produce plants for food. In other words, it will produce their provision. But it will be littered among many thorns and thistles. Adam's provision will come by frustration and hard work required for that provision. This is what we see in verse 19. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. You see, friends, hard work is not the problem. As a matter of fact, most men learn, and this is why I'm convinced little boys love to play in the dirt and the mud, because hard works that make us sweat makes us feel good, and it is right, and it is God's gracious gift for us to work hard and, and, and to, to, to dirty ourselves in that work, if you will. Hard work here is not the problem. The problem is man's internal disdain for the demand of hard work in order to be able to provide for his life. He wants to take the proverbial eternal vacation and be served rather than to rise and to go about his responsibility that God has placed on his life. Sin's distinctive mark on Adam will be his pain and frustration from the continuous demand of providing for the essential necessities of life by his labors and with his production. I'm going to talk about that a little more in just a moment. You see, Adam failed to glorify God by trusting in his abundant provision. Instead of going, hey, we don't need that tree. We have all of the others. He stayed quiet. And this will be an ever constant reminder that he struggles to feel satisfied in his labor and in his production. He struggles and gets frustrated because he never receives the rightful reward and acknowledgement for what he must do in order to produce. And he struggles to frustration and the endlessness of it because he's perceived and the way he's ill-perceived because of what he sees himself producing that no one else recognizes. You see, Adam knows his sin's curse because of instead of living in God's image and producing for God's glory that brings contentment, provision, and gratitude, he'll try to earn his value and labor for his worth in the way in which he measures up against the world's value system instead of God's. Sin will be most felt by Adam 
in his frustrations that rule him when he cannot satisfy the demands the world places on him, and specifically that of his wife and family. And that increasing pain and frustration will come to crush him when the world does not sufficiently praise him. This, for Eve and for Adam, is the condemnation of sin. Must it be the reality of our life? No, no. That's, in fact, quite what we are delivered from by Christ. But I can tell you this, men. When the world doesn't recognize you for the great things that you've accomplished, and when your reward is not received equal to the production that you feel uh, have, you have been able to provide, when your wife does not recognize you in the way that you feel she ought to, or at the time you feel she ought to, that is sin crouching at your door. Regardless of what's fueling it in her. What I'm describing for you is how sin works its subtle manipulation, just as it did with Eve, not to overwhelm God's graciousness, but to ever so lightly boost pride within and to turn the central focus from God's goodness and provision to our own wants and desires. By God's curse, we come to know sin's full effect. That's why the curse is good and gracious for us. Friends, I want to importantly remind you of this. God does not curse Adam and Eve. He curses the serpent. But his curse is in the pain of childbearing and the pain, toil, and frustration of labor from the ground. It is not on Adam and Eve. And I'll talk about why that's important in a moment. But I want you to see how sin is coursing through to its full condemnation in this third move where God's grace comes to us in the form of a curse. Last week I said this, when sin infects by rebellion and disobedience, it affects by darkening our thinking to bring about its effect, our deception and ultimate condemnation. And God is gracious in the curse to reveal for us sin's full effect on life by the depth of sin in our very nature, not just through our acts. That's why we can't overcome our sinful nature by our good deeds. For even they are like filthy rags before God, Romans tells us. When we fail to trust God's provision and obey God's command, sin infects us at the point of our God-ordained responsibility. It affects the way that we see and understand ourselves, and then subsequently the way we understand God and then the way we perceive the whole world. That's its effect upon us by a darkened mind. But listen, its deepest effect within us is to metastasize in our understanding and our expression of a God-imaged value and identity. Hear me, this is so important for us today. Dr. Owen Strawn at Midwestern Seminary, a cultural theologian, says the major issue of the 21st century is that of image and identity. 
our fundamental understanding of what God has done in creating us in his image. And if you don't believe me, look at the very commercial that yet again repeated the same sin-darkened thinking pattern and conclusion that has been repeated so many times in Sprite's new commercial that celebrates and that champions the abomination against God in his God-ordained image of creation of man and woman. Confusing confusing the genders and the sexualities and the roles that God has uh, appointed them to and celebrating that. Woe to you who call evil good and good evil, who look at wickedness and celebrate it as righteousness and righteousness as wickedness. The woe has set in upon our culture. Adam's principal failure is effeminacy and its failure in full bloom. Hear me now. Effeminacy is not a man's display of woman-like characters as we so often think of it. But rather, it is a sin-fueled failure to demonstrate the masculine traits that God created and ordained within the man. Effeminacy marks a man when self-absorbed with his own cares and concerns and absolved in the pleasure or the pity party, whichever side of the coin it may land on, he fails to own his responsibility to take initiative, to sacrifice of himself, and to act in obedience to God. That's effeminacy friends, it's far more rampant than we would give it course for in our world. And sin's effect on the woman will be no different. For a sin-formed image will haunt, will frustrate, and destroy her from within because of the subjugation of her in that relationship and her continuing frustration with it. And from the effects of childbearing that shapes her view, not only by what it, but along with age, begins to do to her body. And consumed by the power of outward beauty, domination now becomes the aim and becomes ever more possible. Feminacy is portrayed in a sin-darkened way as power over oppression by a maintained outward perfection for domination. I told you, when we looked at male and female in the way that God created us, he did not create us to compete and win. He created us to complement and glorify. But sin completely reverses that, friends. The greatest false gospels today sell women on a primary pursuit of outward beauty and appearance above the inner beauty of the heart's disposition. Doesn't mean outward beauty is not important. We can all appreciate the the good hygiene of our world, right? No, we're talking about the priority that receives first in our life. And it fails to tell men, the false gospels today fail to tell men anything except to propagate an increasing effeminacy 
the lack of masculinity and to leave them to their own cycle of self-consumption, principally by toys and anything else that will distract them from taking care of the business God gave to them. That sin spread to full condemnation. And with the full effect of sin exposed, we begin to see the spread of sin take off. Look at verse 20 through 24. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. It's your kindness, Lord, that leads us to repentance. Kindness, compassion, right here. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned away or turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The fourth move we see here is the universal reality of sin's separation and decay. Friends, what we see here will define the remainder of the Old Testament all the way to the time of Christ. This, this universal reality of sin's separation and decay. Once the initial high tension of the fall subsides, Adam returns to exercise the responsibility God gave to him. And the reason I've called her the woman today is because she didn't have a name before now. But once he returns to accept, even in his sinful state, the responsibility that God gave to him, he looks at this woman that blew him away at first glance. He remembers what God has commanded him to do, and he names her Eve. And with that name, he rightly acknowledges her. And he honors her in the naming of her as God would have it. Then we are reminded not only of God's promise, but also of his provision that God said, take those pathetic leaves that are already falling off, get them off of you. And it said God made for them a more permanent solution and God demonstrates his continual care by clothing them with garments made from animal skin. Even in the midst of our sin, when God comes to us, friends, he loves us. He tells us the truth. But in compassion and kindness, he continues to care for us. Finally, God responds to the new knowledge of good and evil, and he casts them out of the garden. You say, well, this may seem harsh, but in fact, it's glorious. For if man had eaten of the tree of life that gives eternal life, he would have remained in his sin-damned state forever. Yet separated and faced with the reality of his decay, he must now deal with it in an ongoing, intensifying, and advanced state as his life chases death in which the sin has left him. Adam and Eve are left to themselves to recognize their insufficiency and to long for a Savior who will come. It's important to understand how God cursed sin because how God curses sin tells us how we respond in our sin to his salvation. If God had cursed us, how could we turn to him 
As we see our sin for what it is, though, and recognize the guilt, the shame, and the isolation within which it accounts for us, we then can only turn to it to look for help from it. And the one who revealed how sin condemns is the one who stands ready to help and to save. Friends, all live under sin's curse that condemns. But Jesus became our curse and he bore our condemnation for us that we might be reconciled to God. Listen, friends, what your sin tells you will never be the answer to the situation in which it put you. If the narrative you repeat continually in your mind is darkened by sin, it will always lead you back to the same shame, guilt, and condemnation. It is a one-way street with one end. You must listen and obey God. You do not have to bear any of the condemnation of sin for your life because Jesus Christ became a curse for us, Galatians 3.13, and bore that curse for us. He who knew no sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21, became sin so that we might in him become the righteousness of life. God tells you the truth about who you are. He tells the truth about our sin and he tells the truth to us about what our sin does to us. That's what the curse does for us. He also tells the truth about the only way to be saved from that sin. You will never work yourself out of it. You will never think yourself out of it. You will never achieve, earn, or be recognized in any other way to get out of it. Only God delivers because he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. Romans 5.17 tells us this. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, two beautiful glorious words, much more, much more. Where sin increases, grace increases all the more. That's what much more means. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. I conclude with this today. Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ to receive the forgiveness and the cleansing of sin that he gives, to cast off the sin-darkened thinking and to be done with the sin-placed crushing condemnation in order to receive the freedom, in order to walk in the light that God tells us he is for us.